The following podcast is provided by truthforsaints.com, a resource for cults, religions, and church history. Hello and welcome to the Truth for Saints podcast, where we look to provide a Bible-based perspective regarding world religions, cults, sects, denominations, and philosophical worldviews, all for the purpose of equipping the saints of God for the work of the ministry and for the building up of the body of Christ, as we see written in the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, verse 12. My name is Andrew Hamilton, and in our last podcast, we covered part three of Jesus' Identity According to the Bible, a Christology series. And we talked about the titles, roles, and earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus. Jesus is teacher, prophet, and savior, reconciling mankind to God. We also examined Jesus' finished work on the cross by providing himself as a propitiation for our sins, the perfect penal substitutionary atonement, and total and complete reconciliation for all who put their faith in him as Savior and Lord. That brings us up now to part four of our series. This series was only really supposed to last about uh, two two episodes, but as it turns out, the material is, there's, there's just so much to cover that I thought we'd maybe expand it yet one more. And in this podcast... Uh, This is the fourth installment in that series. We're going to deal with Jesus' resurrection, its verifiability, its irrefutability, and, and ultimately how invaluable it is not only to the believer, but to the unbeliever to grasp that Jesus was raised from the dead. And we'll, we'll devote this entire episode to explaining that. We'll see what the Bible has to say about Jesus' resurrection. It's a verifiability, irrefutability, and the fourfold invaluability of the resurrection. But let's begin by looking at the verifiability of the resurrection. In Jesus' resurrection, we have our new life, our new body, and our hope. The resurrection was and is verifiable by eyewitnesses. Now, I was confronted with this by uh, by a professor of my sociology class in front of the entire class when I was uh, back at university about uh, 18 plus years ago at UNLV. Uh, his answer uh, to, to my claim of, of eyewitnesses uh, was that a magic act in Las Vegas at the time called Siegfried and Roy could make an elephant disappear in front of an entire crowd, who then would all provide eyewitness accounts that the elephant disappeared, when in reality, they'd all been fooled by a magic trick. And that was his answer to eyewitnesses uh, for the resurrection of Christ. The problem with this is that none of the audiences, Siegfried and Roy, were offered the ultimatum to deny what they saw, that is, an elephant disappearing, or or be put to death. And none of the audiences, Siegfried and Roy, were staunch haters of magicians, quote-unquote, and magic tricks. And then after seeing the elephant disappear, suddenly spent the rest of their lives in a career as evangelists for magicians and their magic tricks. And none of the Siegfried and Roy audience would talk about the elephant disappearing even 2,000 hours after that event, much less 2,000 years. So quite a difference between witnessing a magic act and witnessing the resurrection, an eyewitness to a man who was put to death and then arose from the dead three days later and appeared to people physically, that they could physically touch him. But let's look what the Bible has to say. Let's see in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verses 3 through 7, uh, we have the Apostle Paul talking about what, what the doctrine of the resurrection is. And here he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that, here's the key point, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now. That's Paul's time. But some have fallen asleep. And then in verse 7, he says, He then appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, to as to one untimely born, he appeared to me, Paul speaking, also. So what we have is a verifiable group of witnesses. If that claim was made to the Corinthians, they could simply look up a few of those people that supposedly had seen it to check it out to see if it had actually happened. But there's another eyewitness as well, Thomas, one of the twelve. He emphatically refused to believe the report of Jesus' resurrection unless he could put his hand inside the nail prints in Jesus' hands and his hand inside Jesus' side. And this Thomas, who then became known uh, throughout the ages as Doubting Thomas, and that's where we get our expression, Doubting Thomas, by the way, is from Thomas, one of the twelve. 
uh, he would receive a direct opportunity to physically verify the resurrection, which was given to him directly by the Lord Jesus. Didn't have to do this, but he did it. He loved Thomas. Thomas was one of the 12. And on this occasion, Jesus made himself manifest himself real, appeared to him and let him touch him physically uh, in, in the nail prints and touch him physically in the side so that he could verify that this indeed was the same Jesus who he saw die and put to death on the cross. Anyhow, let's look at what, what's written about this incident in John chapter 20, verses 26 through 29. John writes, after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut and stood in their midst and said, peace be with you. Verse 27, then he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands, reach here with your hand and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God, verse 29, Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. It's a side point. Well, first of all, let's point out that that was verifiable. And here's Thomas, an avid vocal doubter who was changed and was given an opportunity to prove it. Now, Thomas wound up going to India and uh, sharing the gospel with people in India, and he wound up losing his life in India for the faith. But this is a man whose life was changed. He went from being a doubter to a believer and to a life-changed believer thereafter. But there is something interesting in that, I'd like to say, since we're talking about this, we're talking about Christology. Now, here is where Thomas looks at the Lord Jesus and says, my Lord and my God, identifying Jesus. Now, did Jesus rebuke him? Was Thomas just exclaiming that like you you see on uh, on TV today where people just blaspheme and use the Lord's name in vain? Was he just expressing that in a in a very irreverent way? Well, he wouldn't wouldn't have been. Thomas was a good Jewish man and uh, had been a follower of the Lord Jesus for uh, the vast majority of the time that he had been in ministry, that he'd been ministering. And so he's not going to say, at least not in front of Jesus, he's not going to blaspheme and use the Lord's name in vain by just exclaiming, my Lord and my God. No, rather, he was looking directly at Jesus and identifying him. And that's clear from the text. My Lord and my God. And what did Jesus do? Did he rebuke him? No, he didn't. In verse 29, he said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? In other words, declaring to Thomas, I recognize that you believe now. You've declared me to be Lord and God. But blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. And that's one of the strongest passages for the deity of Christ. Uh, that we see. So let's go into some other verifiable proofs. So the other thing I'd like to look at is the empty tomb. Now, the thing I'd like to talk about here is that if there were a tomb for Jesus, it would have been found by Jews seeking to discredit the resurrection. If he'd have been buried somewhere, they would have scoured the, the countryside. And uh, Romans would have been seeking to save face. Now, the thing about this is you have uh, Pilate who wanted to make sure that Jesus was dead, and you had a centurion who had to report to him that he's dead. You had uh, the Romans who were assigned to guard the body, and yet the body was stolen away. That wouldn't go well. Romans would have been seeking to save face and find him, or they would have drug a few people in and raked them over the coals, tortured them, done whatever they had to do to get a confession out of something. But none of this happened. Uh, zealous disciples is another one. They would have been looking to worship the corpse. You know, there were some bizarre uh, beliefs about um, about some of the other uh, founders, you know, of, of a particular faith system. And a lot of their disciples began to uh, extol and worship the place of, of the burial, like Siddhartha Gautama of the, of the Buddhists. So you would have had disciples that would have sought out his tomb and would have actually found it. They would have they would have come, they would have come up with something because there was, it wasn't that big. It wasn't that heavily populated to where it couldn't be found, especially considering it was at a mountainside and and there just aren't that many tombs uh, in the area. But uh, let's look what Luke has to say in chapter twenty four, verses twenty one through twenty four about the empty tomb. Luke writes, but we. That's the men on the road to Emmaus. They're the ones who are talking here. And Luke's reporting about it. But we, the men from uh, on the road to Emmaus, were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things have happened. Verse 22, but also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. 
Verse 24, some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said, but him, Jesus, they did not see. Now, see, these were the, the, the men who were exp uh, explaining this to a man that they thought was just this unidentified random guy that had come alongside them on their road to Emmaus. And then it was revealed to them in the evening that this itself was the Lord appearing to them, uh, raised from the dead. And here they are describing what had happened when someone found the empty tomb to the man that was in that tomb and that himself had had been raised. So the other thing about the empty tomb is keep in mind this, that to steal the body would have taken several noisy men, several noisy minutes, if not hours, with no chance of getting past, quote unquote, sleeping Roman guards who do this for a living, by the way. So that was the story among the Jews. Uh, but and we're going to talk about some of the different claims of different faiths around the world who try to discredit Christianity by discrediting the, the resurrection. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Uh, but to steal a body, you would have to roll away a stone without waking anybody up. Those things don't roll quietly. They're not, uh, you know, they don't they they don't rest the stone on shag carpet. It's it's on a very noisy rock or ground, and the, the very ground rumbles when they're rolling the stone. And it would have taken them a long, long time to get in there and to get out, and they would have had to rustle along with a corpse. It would not have been quiet. So there really wouldn't be a way for the guards to be sleeping, especially not Roman guards who are soldiers and who are trained to awaken at the, at the slightest of sounds because they're battle-worn soldiers. But let's move on from the empty tomb now, and let's talk about the changed lives, another verifiable uh, point of the resurrection. These scared, fearful men who were disciples, they became bold, confident preachers and miracle workers. Now, the thing to think about is these disciples all were scattered. According to Scripture, they would be. The Lord said, I'll strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And that's exactly what he did. And that's exactly what happened. The disciples all scattered in the Garden of Gethsemane. Peter denies Jesus three times out of fear to a, a slave girl, a little servant girl. And uh, they're all uh, thereafter. They're only meeting behind locked doors for fear of the Jews. They're not even meeting openly. They're, they're hiding and no one knows where they are. And, that, and they like it that way. But let's see what John uh, chapter 20 has to say. Verse 19. This is a key, key verse here. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when, now here's the one at the point I want you to pay attention to in this passage. And when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, peace be with you. So again, we revisit this passage, but especially we look at verse 19, where it says they were meeting behind closed doors for fear of the Jews. But that's not to last. That's the great thing. These disciples were somehow transformed into bold witnesses speaking in the temple, standing before magistrates and declaring the truth of Jesus' resurrection and preaching to a massive crowd of people whereby 3,000 at one time were saved. That's not bad at all. Uh, that's quite bold to be able to do that. Well, let's see here. Luke chapter 24, verse 50. Uh, and he, Jesus, led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Verse 52, he says, And they, after worshiping, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. Right. So verse 53 of Luke 24, and they were continually in the temple praising God. That's post-resurrection, actually post-ascension even. John 20, verse 19, the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. There's a transformation happening there. Now they're, they're continually in the temple praising God. And that the only thing that took place was the resurrection. Well, it doesn't end there. That's just uh, that's just the tip of the iceberg. In Acts chapter 2, you have Peter standing up after Pentecost and preaching to an entire crowd. Now, this is a guy that denied Jesus three times to a slave girl. Now he's standing up before Pharisees, scribes, you name it, Jews of every, every race, every uh, creed, every color uh, from all over the world that had gathered there. And there he was standing up preaching to them all and sharing the gospel boldly. And he to and told them exactly uh, what needed to happen. They needed to be repent and, and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Uh, and 3,000 were saved that day. Uh, quite a transformation for Peter, considering, you know, just prior to the resurrection, here's Peter uh, as one man. And then in Acts 2, Peter's a completely different man.
That can't happen if all you've done is stolen a body from a tomb. That, that sort of transformation doesn't happen. But now let's look at Philip. Philip preached to the Ethiopian eunuch. Thomas, as I say, went to the uh, preached to the Indians, and and Peter then also pe- preached to the Romans. These men went everywhere, and yet they were hiding at one point, but they were completely changed, transformed lives. And the only thing you could point to is the resurrection as that uh, as the one decisive event that took place prior to the transformation. Now, another transformed life would would come along slightly later. There was a hateful, murdering Jewish persecutor, and his name was Saul. And this is a man who hated Christians, was dragging Christians out of their homes, having them put to death. And something happened to him that he not only dropped his craft of hating Christians and murdering them and getting papers to get more murdered. In fact, in the stoning of Stephen, the first uh, martyr of the church, there was the Apostle Paul uh, right there in the midst of it. And all the men that stoned Stephen laid their cloaks at the uh, feet of a young man named Saul, the Acts tells us. Now, the thing about this is uh, hateful, murdering Jewish per- persecutors are not going to just drop their craft of, dist- of killing and murdering Christians uh, and their lifelong faith of staunch Judaism and their position within Judaism, which was a very high respected position in Judaism, to suddenly then spend their life spreading the faith of the ones they were putting to death only a few months before, and then ultimately paying with their life, their livelihood. They were cast out of the synagogue. They were stoned and left for dead, shipwrecked. All sorts of things happened, put in chains repeatedly. Why would someone do that that was murdering Christians only a few months before and then their life has changed? Well, the resurrected Christ appeared to the Apostle Paul. Now, in 1 Timothy, the Apostle Paul talks about it. Chapter 1, verse 13. Even though I, and this is Paul speaking, was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. Verse 14, the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Another transformation that would take place in the half-brothers of Jesus himself. Jesus' half-brothers, those that were born of uh, Mary and Joseph, but uh, of course Jesus, although he came through, as we discussed in the virgin birth, Jesus came through Mary, but he was born of the Holy Spirit, of the Father. So he wasn't Uh, He wasn't of the seed of Joseph, and that was necessary in order for him to be born without sin and to remain sinless so that he'd be the perfect sin sacrifice. Well, uh, Mary and Joseph were still married and still uh, had children besides Jesus, which we hear about repeatedly throughout Scripture. Now, this is contrary to what Roman Catholics would teach, and even what they would, uh, when I was a Roman Catholic, you wouldn't hear about the family of Jesus because there is this uh, doctrine, which I would say is a made-up doctrine, about Mary's perpetual virginity, that she remained a virgin all her life and died a virgin and that sort of thing. But all of that's make-believe and fairy tale talk, because according to Scripture, uh, Jesus had half-brothers, and in fact, they themselves declared themselves to be Jesus' half-brothers, uh, one of which is James, who became the leader of the Jerusalem church and wrote the book of James for us. Another was uh, Jude or Joses, and uh, he would write the book of Jude, which Jude verse three says to contend for the faith that's once for all delivered for the saints. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. Now, uh, he also had a sister. I think her name was Salome, a uh, half-sister. All of these are, are half-brothers and half-sisters. Anyhow, these half-brothers who, uh, who disbelieved all their lives suddenly became believers, but only the event of the resurrection is the only thing that could have turned them around. Half-brothers who disbelieved all their lives all the way through the crucifixion would have no reason to suddenly just abandon this disbelief and suddenly embrace suffering, which they did, for the sake of the person that they disbelieved, their uh, supposed brother, uh, unless something of a miraculous nature happened, which I submit to you is the resurrection. Let's look in John chapter 7, verse 3. This is one of the, the points where his brothers are mentioned in Scripture. Therefore his, Jesus' brothers, said to him, Leave here and go into Judea, so that your disciples may also see your works, which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And then verse 5, John says, For not even his brothers were believing in him. 
Verse 6, so Jesus said to them, his brothers, my time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. There you see the mention of his brothers, and there you see uh, you see that they are truly not believers, according to John, who is one of the closest disciples to Jesus, and then one of the most perhaps uh, closest to Jesus, and then one of the uh, apostles that would go out and turn the world upside down. And yet, let's let Joseph, whom I mentioned, Jude, wrote one of the twenty-seven books of the New Testament. And Jesus' other half-brother, James, became the leader of the church in Jerusalem, as I said. And it was a very important center of Christianity in those days when James was leading it. And the other thing about uh, James is he would eventually be put to death. James is the one referred to as camel knees because he spent so much time in prayer. His knees were very calloused. I'm not sure who tells the story, uh, but the very, very early fathers, there's a second century retelling of events that says that James was thrown off the temple wall uh, as an execution, but he did not die. Uh, He survived. Uh, Eventually, though, he would be martyred for the faith. And all of this uh, he could have avoided by simply denying that his half-brother was anything more than just his brother and nothing else. But he didn't. He died for his faith, and yet John tells us they were unbelieving. In fact, they were unbelieving all the way through the crucifixion. But it was there was an event between that point and the point where James took on leadership of the church. There was a key event that took place, and I submit to you that that is indeed the resurrection. So the resurrection is verifiable. But the resurrection is also irrefutable. And here's where we'll take a look at a few of the perhaps more widely circulated theories about what might have happened uh, to Jesus on the cross or why it is that it comes across like he was uh, resurrected from the dead when in reality their belief is that he wasn't. So one of the first is I've been talking about it all along. That's the stolen body theory. That's uh, the first theory. That was the first one that was circulated and still even to this day is the thing that's circulated. And it goes, a li- it goes a little like this. Someone stole the body, and that explains the disciples' uh, belief in the resurrection as well as the empty tomb. Uh, now, this is typically, this was spread by the Jews originally in, uh, in Jesus' time, and it just passed down. It passed into Talmudic uh, Judaism, and it became sort of the standard explanation for all of the, the belief in the resurrection, because the one thing they couldn't refute is the belief they couldn't refute the fact that all of these lives were changed. These men were, were um, transformed. But the reason is that somebody, they say, that, that someone, someone else stole the body and perhaps it wasn't the disciples and somehow they, they were duped. Anyhow, the refutation to this is who would benefit from a stolen body? That's the thing we need to think about. Who benefits from stealing the body? The Romans wouldn't benefit, so you know it isn't the Romans, because they would have to show publicly that they have that they satisfy their own law of execution completely. So the stolen body could not have been the Romans as they were put in charge of guarding the tomb. The Jews wouldn't benefit either, as they made it clear that the absence of a body would perpetuate that uh, what they thought to be a myth. So the Jews wouldn't have stolen the body, that is the unbelievers. Uh, because what would wind up happening there is they would serve to perpetuate the idea that he was raised from the dead, and that's something the Jews did not want to do. So the Jews didn't do it. The Romans didn't do it. Random disciples wouldn't even risk being associated with him at his arrest, much less risking execution by breaking through a Roman sealed uh, a Roman guard to steal Jesus' body. As I said, a very noisy endeavor indeed. Uh, also, the 12 closest disciples wouldn't be martyred for this lie and deception if they did it. So if the 12 closest disciples, one of the close disciples stole the body, they wouldn't be martyred for this lie and deception that they perpetuated themselves by stealing the body. So this still doesn't explain, though, the the post-crucifixion appearances to an entire room and more than 500 people at once. Uh, this because you you might have had somebody steal the body. Okay, now explain how five hundred people saw him at, saw him at once, how a whole room of people saw him, how a person that hated him was turned around and had his life transformed. I mean, it, it doesn't explain any of those things. Yet this is the primary explanation for an empty tomb by the Jewish religion, started in the time of Jesus, and it's continued to this day. The second attempt at re- refuting the the resurrection is the swoon theory. 
And the way that this one goes, it says that Jesus didn't really die. He was given a drug while on the cross, which simulated death and later recovered, revealed himself to his disciples as resurrected, then lived out the rest of his life in hiding. Quite an interesting reach, uh, but it, it wasn't one that was well thought through when it came up. Uh, this is the explanation by the Muslim religion for post-crucifixion appearances to the disciples. So that what they did there is he fooled everybody by swooning his death, right? Uh, and deceived the disciples and... The disciples then, that's what caused them to have transformed lives. And then that's what caused, uh, that's what, that's how Jesus appeared to over 500 at once. And uh, that's how Thomas was able to put his hand inside. And it, and it explains a lot of those things. But what it doesn't explain is it doesn't explain the ascension in front of all of the disciples, all of the apostles. The other way that this uh, attempt at refutation uh, falls short is that after hanging on a cross for several hours, being pierced in his side and wrapped mummy style, how did he break the burial linen, roll the stone away, overpower the guards, and after crawling to the upper room on his elbows and knees, you would assume, uh, succeed in convincing the disciples that he was resurrected? See, the thing is, you have to remember the swoon theory says Jesus acted alone in deceiving all of the people that he was. So, so in other words, let's run through it again. And remember, it can't, the disciples can't help him with this because he's trying to deceive these, these disciples into believing he's resurrected so that their lives will be changed. Remember, so this has to be Jesus that pulls this off all on his own. And here's what Jesus had to do. After hanging on a cross for several hours, now even that in itself, believe me, he lost a ton of blood. He had a giant spike through both of his uh, legs. He had spikes through the wrist just below the hand, just, just below the joint of the hand, uh, and bled there for six hours. And somehow he... Also, because the, the Romans had to pierce him on the, in the side to make sure that he w was dead, they pierced his side with a lance. And he survived all this, by the way, while hanging on the cross for six hours and being pierced in his side and water and, and, and blood came out. And the Romans, uh, it satisfied the Romans' um, uh, idea that he was dead. But, but according to the Muslims, Jesus was drugged during this whole time. So he could handle a lance in his side and be hanging on the cross for six hours. Then uh, what he'd have to do is he's wrapped mummy style, which is how they would do it, in burial linen. And then, which he's bound up. So he'd have to, after with all, having lost all this blood, having a giant lance shoved into his side and having uh, hung on the cross with nails on his hands and feet for six hours, he'd have to break that burial linen right after that. Then he'd have to do that. Then he'd also have to roll the stone away himself from the inside. Not only would he have to do that, but then he'd have to overpower the guards all by himself. Remember, the disciples can't help him because he's got to deceive them. Remember, that's what the Muslims say. So he had to overpower the guards. And then after he overpowers the guards and after crawling to the upper room, I would imagine he was just destroyed, beaten. But yet he would crawl up to the upper room. He then would succeed in convincing his disciples that he had been resurrected. Well, how did he appear behind the doors? How did he be appear behind the, the, the closed doors? So it doesn't explain the ascension, which I say, and the disciples dying for their testimony of Jesus rising. It doesn't explain that. It doesn't make sense at all uh, because he wouldn't have been able to pull this off. And if the, any disciples helped them, it would have, they would have confessed that rather than give their life to something. They knew that they were in on the whole thing. It, it raises more questions than it answers. Uh, here's a few. What happened to Jesus? You know, did he die alone where no one could witness this and then report it? Did, uh, you know, after 40 days, the Bible says he ascended into heaven. No one ever saw him again after that. So how did he stay so well hid thereafter and no one saw him? Where did his body go when he actually did die? Uh, why did he disappear forever? 40 days after the crucifixion, if he was fully living someone, he would have appeared to somebody. Even John the Baptist tried to live on his own, but people found him. Uh, and he was quite famous. People would have seen him and would have recognized who it is and reports would have spread that they see him. So here's the issue now with, with this position from the Muslims. The Muslims believe Jesus is a good man and a prophet. How can you believe that Jesus is a good man and a prophet if he pulled off that horrible deception? 
because their account of him would make Jesus out to be a liar and a charlatan. And he can't possibly be both a good man and prophet, as they say he is, and be uh, a liar and a charlatan, as they say he is, according to the swoon theory. He can't be both of those if he claimed to be. There's a third one called the hallucination theory. Now, this is the thing. This is what explains the, the apparitions. It, it says the disciples didn't really see Jesus raised from the dead. They hallucinated seeing him because they wanted so badly for him to be alive. And uh, this typically is kind of a modern-day atheist naturalist explanation for the post-crucifixion appearances of Jesus. Because, And this would go back to my, my sociology professor. Uh, they, it's a hallucination because they wanted to believe it. They wanted to believe that the elephant was made to disappear at Siegfried and Roy, and therefore it did. They wanted to believe that Jesus had raised from the dead, and therefore he did. But here's, here's how this refutation is refuted. A few hallucinating the exact same hallucination at the exact same time would be highly unlikely, extremely unlikely, for just a couple people to hallucinate the exact same thing at the exact same time. Well, how about a room full of people? A room full of people witness him, and Thomas puts his hands in the side of a hallucination, puts his finger in the nail prints of a hallucination. How on earth did that happen? How, uh, how did that hallucination happen? Now, here's another one. How does a hallucination happen to 500 people at once? The same hallucination at the exact same time saying the exact same thing to each and every person, all hallucinating the same uh, for that same duration. So uh, that's impossible. It's, in fact, it takes far more faith to believe the hallucination theory than it does to believe what the Bible reports and what the uh, verifiable evidence is that uh, Jesus was raised. So in addition, you know, his disciples uh, sometimes didn't even recognize him at first. In Luke chapter four, uh, 24, verses 16 and 31, you, you see that they, they didn't even recognize him at first. It, it took them a while. The, guy, uh, the, the, the guys on the road to Emmaus didn't know that that was Jesus until they, he broke bread with them. That won't happen in a hallucination out of intense desire to see a person. You'd never mistaken, you'd never have trouble recognizing someone at first if that if it was just a hallucination of somebody you wanted to see anyways. And the thing is, as I made mention, is Jesus made sure that Thomas put his fingers in the nail prints and in Jesus' side while stating, does a spirit have flesh and bones as I have? It's not an apparition. He's uh, not a hallucination, but he had flesh and bones and they were verified uh, there, as we read in John chapter 20, verses 25 and 27. And then you'll also see the same account in Luke 24, verses uh, 36 through 43. Also worthy of mention, the disciples were clueless to why Jesus even had to die at all, much less that he would be resurrected from the dead. None of them were really expecting that he would be resurrected, nor were they necessarily looking for it so badly, you know, as the uh, humanists or the as the uh, the atheists might want to believe about them. They didn't know why he died. Why did he have to die? None of them even realized that he would be raised from the dead. Most of them were shocked and, that, and surprised that he even would be raised from the dead. So there wasn't this constant longing that resulted in a hallucination. And again, this also doesn't explain the empty tomb at all. They're hallucinating that Jesus was raised from the dead. I guess there's a perpetual hallucination that's been going on for 2,000 years that there's an empty tomb over there. There would have been a tomb in existence with Jesus's body in it. So the last one we'll talk about here on the uh, point of irrefutability, another attempt at refuting the uh, resurrection is called the legend theory. Now, the way this one goes is the story of the resurrection is not factual, but reflects a legend which the early church came to believe. It's another one of the atheist naturalist's favorite kind of explanations for the empty tomb and post-crucifixion appearances. Uh, they just kind of call it a make-believe story. You know, the whole thing's just make-believe. The whole thing is myth. The whole thing is legend. But this fails to uh, refute the theory because the Gospels and Epistles have been accurately dated to about 50 to 95 AD, roughly. Uh, and there just wasn't enough time in that short amount of time, considering it was probably about, what, 30, 33 AD, roughly, 
There just wasn't enough time for such a false legend to arise, especially since eyewitnesses could easily discredit it. There were people there that could have easily discredited the whole thing and could have gone and said, I saw the whole thing and this isn't what what happened. This is all just a legend. This is all just a myth. It could have been refuted, but yet it was already being reported 50 to 95. So a legend couldn't have arisen and it would have been very easy to refute if it were indeed a legend and had no basis in fact or truth whatsoever. Also, this does not explain why the disciples were willing to die for the supposed legend or theory they created when they knew full well that it was just a lie. Why on earth would you die for a legend that you created yourself? It makes no sense whatsoever. Now, you'd die for something that was a legend that you believed to be true, but you wouldn't die for something that you knew for a fact was a lie because you were part of the, part of the, the perpetration of the lie itself originally, part of the legend creation, so to speak. So nobody would die for that. Finally, you know, we have extra biblical accounts of the, of the event itself. So we go outside the Bible if we have to, and we'll show you the extra biblical people that are outside scripture that reported on this exact event. So Flavius Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, it's an excellent writings. If you ever get the writings of Josephus, they're fantastic. Uh, he lived from 37 to 97 AD, roughly. He was a court historian for Emperor Vespasian, and he writes this, at this time, there was a wide man who was called Jesus, and his conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous. And many people from among the Jews and other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die, and those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah concerning whom the prophets have recounted wonders. So now this is Josephus, not a believer necessarily, but does report on Jesus as uh, perhaps being the Messiah that people had talked about because of the idea that he had been raised three days after his crucifixion. This wasn't a legend, not at this time. It was reported and had been reported, and that's how Josephus referred to it as reported, not as something created. And because Josephus wasn't a believer, he had no reason to declare it as being reported as opposed to fabricated. A couple other extra extra biblical accounts, these of course being believers. One is Clement, the elder of Rome. Uh, he, he wrote a letter to the Corinthian church around 95 AD. Uh, he wrote that the apostles received the gospel for us from the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was sent forth from God, so then Christ is from God and the apostles are from Christ. Both therefore came of the will of God in the appointed order. Having therefore received a charge and having been fully assured through the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and confirmed in the word of God with full assurance of the Holy Ghost, they went forth with the glad tidings that the kingdom of God should come. So preaching everywhere in country and town, they appointed their first fruits when they had proved them by the Spirit to be bishops and deacons unto them that should believe. Having therefore, he says, having therefore received a charge and having been fully assured through the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this would have been this would have been towards the end of the first century. This isn't the Bible. This is outside the Bible. This is a letter of Clement, who was a bishop of Rome. I think he eventually became the bishop of Rome. Uh, when he was writing to the Corinthian church. And he tells them about and reminds them about the truth of the resurrection. Another believer, again, outside of the Bible, who wrote about the resurrection was Quadratus to Emperor Hadrian about 125 AD. And he writes to Hadrian, the deeds of our Savior were always before you, for they were true miracles. Those that were healed, those that were raised from the dead, who were seen not only when healed and when raised, but were always present. They remained living a long time, not only whilst our Lord was on the earth, but likewise when he had left the earth, so that some of them had also lived to our own times. The resurrection is biblical, verifiable, and irrefutable. But why is it so important? Why does it matter so much? What makes the resurrection so invaluable? Let's take a look at the invaluable resurrection uh, to the believer and even to the unbeliever. I like to break it down into three points. Number one is that the resurrection declares that Jesus is who he says he is. And the second thing was that he had accomplished what he said he would accomplish. And the third thing was 
that he would accomplish what he said he will accomplish in the future. That is our hope. So let's first look at the first of these three points, the resurrection declaring that Jesus is who he said he is. Acts chapter 2, verses 24 through 35. This is that um, passage that I told you about where Peter, Peter stood up and addressed the crowd. Him, and this is Peter speaking, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God you have taken by lawless hands, speaking of Jesus, have crucified and have put to death. Here in verse 24, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he, Jesus, should be held by it. Verse 25, for David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. And here in verse 27, it says, For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. And now Peter comes back to the crowd after quoting David there. In verse 29, he says, Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Verse 30, Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him, that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, here's the key part, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh seek corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Verse 33, Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. This is Peter's declaration uh, that Jesus was who he said he was. His resurrection declares to you and declares to me that Jesus is who he said he is. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is God incarnate. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And the Apostle Peter in the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, uh, David in his prophecy, declaring this prophetic utterance, a foretelling of the future, that the Messiah would be raised from the dead. Now, in Romans chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, we, we see Paul write this, Concerning his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh, verse 4, and declared to be the Son of God, with power, according to the Spirit of holiness. How is he declared to be this? By the resurrection from the dead. Verse 4 again, And declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection of the dead. That's one thing that the, the, that the resurrection declares for you and me, that Jesus is who he says he is. He was who he said he was. And he declared himself to be God incarnate and declared himself to be the son of man, declared himself to be the Messiah, the son of God. In John, they took up stones to stone him because, and he said, I did all these good works for you. Which of the, for which of these good works do you stone me? And he said, and the Jews said, we didn't, we don't stone you for any of these good works, but you being a man made your, make yourself out to be God. They knew exactly what he was talking about. And he didn't say, whoa, 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 well, no, wait a minute. I wasn't saying that now. I was saying I was the son of God. He didn't. He just went straight forward and said, well, you have no problem with the men in, uh, in Psalms saying that they were God's. Uh, because they they had the scriptures given to him. Now you, you're giving me a hard time because I'm saying I'm the son of God. He made it quite clear that he is God incarnate. That they and they they picked up stones and knew exactly what he was talking about. The resurrection tells us that he is who he says he is. He was who he said he was. The second invaluable point of the resurrection is uh, it declares that Jesus has done what he said he would do. Uh, namely, it gives us newness of life to live in freedom for sin. Those who believe in him, this is for believers. Uh, the, the first point is for both believers and non, non-believers, primarily geared to non-believers. So that it's a witness to them to show them that, and that's why the, the Apostle Paul always preached Jesus crucified he, to, to 
non-believers, to unbelievers. He preached Jesus crucified, and no one else has been raised from the dead. Siddhartha Gautama is still dead today and was never raised from the dead. None of the gurus of Indian Hinduism have been raised from the dead. Muhammad hasn't been raised from the dead. Lao Tzu was not raised from the dead. I can go on and on and on. Joseph Smith was not raised from the dead. All these people that founded their own religions have all died and their corpses are here on the earth. Uh, well, probably not their corpses, but their bones probably are, if, if still in some spots. But none of them raised from the dead. But Jesus came and said he was God incarnate, God in the flesh, the Son of God, the Savior of mankind, here to redeem us from our sins. And the resurrection tells you and tells me that that indeed is what happened, and therefore that is indeed who he is. Right. So going back to this point, so that's point one for the unbeliever as a good witness to the unbeliever. Point two is for believers. The resurrection declares that Jesus has done what he said he would do. I guess that's probably for both believers and non-believers. Number one is uh, that uh, he gives us new, newness of life to live in freedom from sin by the power of the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter eight, verse 11. If Christ is in you, Though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. And here it is, the key, the key verse in verse 11. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are under no obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That's a very key verse. That's Romans 8, verse 10 through 13. But that particular verse that I'm interested in is verse 11. If, by the, if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit, who dwells in you. So that tells us that even though as Christians we struggle, we have a difficult time with things in life and with ourselves, even uh, trying to live for the Lord Jesus, we know the resurrection says that uh, that power dwells in us. The resurrection power of Jesus dwells in us. And therefore, because the resurrect, the, the spirit of, that brought Jesus back from the dead will bring you and me back from the dead and will give us the power to put to death the deeds of the flesh. Uh, which allows us to live according to the Spirit. The other thing I think that's interesting, that's since Jesus said, no man takes my life, I lay it down freely. He said, I have the power to lay it down and the power to take it up again. And this is why the Father loves me, because I take my life up again, right? So you, you see in John, I think that's John, John 9, I think it might be John chapter 9, uh, Jesus talks about himself, raising himself from the dead. And yet here in Romans 8, we see, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. That's showing that the Holy Spirit is also credited with raising Jesus from the dead. And this is the great thing about the resurrection. You see the Father giving, uh, that the Father is involved in raising Jesus from the dead, that the Holy Spirit is involved with raising Jesus from the dead, and Jesus is involved in raising himself from the dead. And it's a, it's a, a powerful uh, recognition of the Trinity at work, not only, as I said earlier, that um, in one of the earlier podcasts, that the, the Trinity is present in the process of salvation, but here you see the Trinity present in the process of the resurrection. So the resurrection tells us that Jesus is who he says he is, and that he has done what he said he would do. And the third thing is the resurrection declares that Jesus will do what he said he will do. In John chapter 5, verses 25, uh, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself, and he gave him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. So that's a key verse, that's a key point of the resurrection for the believer, knowing full well uh, that we are all the first resurrection Jesus talks about here in verse 20, 25 through um, 29 is the resurrection of the believer. Those who hear will live. I say to you, an hour is coming and now is. 
when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. And so uh, we also see in there, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. So we see a physical resurrection, but we also see a spiritual resurrection that takes place when we are resurrected in our spirit and then we're resurrected in our body. So he will do what he said he will do. But that also is for unbelievers to beware because uh, that resurrection is coming. You know, when you die, it's not as the atheists say, where you just go into uh, obliteration, annihilation, and then nothing happens. You just die and you die. But actually what will happen is you'll go to judgment and there will be a resurrection, some to life. And those who have rejected the Lord Jesus will go to a resurrection of judgment. And that's complete and total separation from all things that would be even remotely deemed good. Right. And so the other thing is that Jesus repeats this above statement about four times more. I love this passage in John chapter six. Within a short amount of time, he repeats it four times more uh, throughout verses 39 through 40 of chapter six. I'll read this for you. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. There you go. That's what will happen for you and for me. He will do what he said he will do. Verse 40, for this is the will of my father, that everyone who beholds the son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up at the last day. He said it there twice. I myself will raise him up at the last day. He will do what he said he will do. Verse 44. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And here you go again. And I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 54. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. He will do what he said he will do. And that's quite obvious from this passage that you and I will arise uh, to life everlasting. Now, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 14, the Apostle Paul writes, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus, meaning those who are Christians and have already gone before us. When Jesus returns, they will come back. And those of us who are here will behold them. Uh, but uh, those of us who have gone on will come back with him. In Acts chapter 17, verses 30 through 31, Luke quotes Paul speaking to a crowd saying, Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this... To all by raising him from the dead. Again, he commands all men everywhere to repent in verse 30 because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained, which is Jesus. He has given assurance that this will take place, the judgment will take place, and that we must all repent. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Now that passage is for those who are unbelievers to know that indeed he's given assurance. The resurrection is assurance uh, for those that he will do what he said he will do. And that includes the judgment. So we all face a judgment, but if we are born again, if we trust in the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, we have, we have passed from judgment into life. Not because of anything we have done, but because of what he has done. And if and that and I spent the whole last podcast talking about what he had done in his in his death on the cross. Going on to First Corinthians chapter fifteen, this is the Apostle Paul's uh, letter to the Corinthians, uh, verses twenty to twenty-three. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by one man came death. Also by one man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits after those who are Christ at his coming. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all All will be made alive, but each in his order. Christ the firstfruits, after after that, those who are Christ's at his coming. So we will be made alive. That is what Jesus declares in the resurrection tells us, that it will be as Jesus said. Paul again writes in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 5, Or do you not know that as many of us 
as were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death. Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. And that's a great hope. That's a hope for the believer, that we will be resurrected. We don't go to death. We have no reason. Christians have absolutely zero reason to fear death at all. In fact, it's something for us to rejoice in and delight in and be able to see the Lord and be with the Lord. Uh, but our bodies will not be left forever, but we, there will be a resurrection, a physical resurrection. And the Lord made that promise that he will raise us on the last day. The thing I think is interesting about this verse, this is that verse I told you about. Therefore, it said that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. And that goes back to what I just said regarding the Father is listed there as taking part in the resurrection of Jesus. I just read to you a verse uh, where the Holy Spirit is present in the resurrection. And then I mentioned the, the passage in John where Jesus said he takes up his life. The fourth and final invaluable point of the resurrection is that this resurrection is an essential to our Christian faith. It basically separates genuine faith from a counterfeit faith, and that makes it an essential doctrine. I know that some have come along and have tried to paint the resurrection as just an opinion by some, and we can all vary on that and still be, uh, you know, brothers in Christ and that sort of thing. And uh, you don't have to believe that he uh, was literally resurrected from the dead. You can think that's allegory, that sort of thing. But the problem with running around and calling some scriptures allegory and some scriptures not allegory is you become become the final arbiter and judge over God's word, over what is to be taken literally and what is to be taken as allegory. And therefore, I would reject all of that. That arises from a man named Origen, who himself wound up being an apostate in his final days. And so I don't think it bears much. So the resurrection is not an allegory. It's not poetic and, and all of that sort of nonsense. The resurrection is a literal fact. It did take place, and it is an essential to the Christian faith, and that is why it is so widely attacked by so many different groups, because I think if they can undo the resurrection, they can undo the Christian faith. But let's hear what the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 22. We'll close with this scripture. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we have been found to be false witnesses of Christ, because we have testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. Verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those who have also fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. I'm going to read those verses again from 17 to 19 are key. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And then verse 19, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Now the final verses that follow are the ones we've just read a short while ago. In verse 20, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who fall asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. The four invaluable points. Now that is that Jesus is who he says he is. He did what he said he would do, and he will do what he said he will do, and that the resurrection itself is a cornerstone of the Christian faith. It is, uh, it is one of the most important doctrines uh, and essential to the Christian faith. And by departing from the resurrection, that a person would be departing from the faith and would have an aberrant view or a heretical view. But there is no better place to end than there in verse 22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. So what this tells us is if you are a Christian, 
the resurrection, the verifiable, irrefutable, all-important truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ stands as a cornerstone to your faith. However, if you are not yet a Christian, the resurrection stands as an all-important truth that Jesus is who he said he is and can do for you what he said he would do, that is, take away your sins, your slavery to sin, and be a propitiation to turn away the wrath of God that will abide on you until you repent and believe in his son Jesus. And the ultimate question there is, why not make that decision today? Why not turn to Jesus today, cry out for forgiveness of your sins, receive him, receive his grace and his washing of your sins, and allow him to transform your life by his grace? Well, with that, we come to the end of this episode. We'll be back next time to wrap up this series on Christology, at least I hope. I don't don't think I'm going to extend this to any further episodes, but hopefully we'll try to get everything wrapped up next week as we examine the ascension, the exaltation, uh, and the eternal priesthood of the highest order of Jesus as he occupies his rightful place at the right hand of the Father where he is now. So if you'd like more information about issues of like this, of theology, of apologetics, world religions, worldviews, denominations, church history, cults, sects, even a discussion of what is truth, all of these topics and more can be found on our site, truthforsaints.com, or you might be able to go and find a few of the back episodes of the podcast. Or you can follow us on Twitter. Uh, our handle is at truthforsaints, all one word, lowercase. Uh, To be kept up to date on future episodes and additions to the website, I always post when I have a new page up on denominations is what I'm working through now. Uh, With that, I'm Andrew Hamilton, and I thank you for listening to this podcast. Subscribe to receive a notification of this and future episodes so we can meet again next time right here on the Truth for Saints podcast. Thank you for listening to this podcast provided by truthforsaints.com. 